Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm in our state of the art recording suite in downtown Hammersmith with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us to discuss all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism today is the very entertaining Daryl Easley. What an absolute honour to be here. Oh, bless <laughs> you. No, what a treat. Bless your heart. Here I am. Look, there's three strong men surrounding me. <laughs> Daryl is here to get us all in the Merry Xmas spirit by telling us about his timely new biography of Slade. More sadly, we'll be paying tribute to the Pogues' Shane McGowan, whose immortal fairy tale of New York is almost as famous a Christmas song as Slade's Merry Xmas, everybody. Finally, we're marking the release of Peter Gabriel's new album with clips from a 1992 audio interview with the former Genesis frontman. Daryl. One of the pieces that were featuring by you on the homepage is about Dr. Feelgood mm. and Canvey Island. Am I correct in thinking that you grew up in that part of the world? I did. I grew up in a village outside South End called Great Wakering. Hence is, Lord Wakering. Hence Lord Wakering, which is my Twitter handle. <laughs> um, X handle. X handle. Now. X and, Twitter uh, handle. It's, it's recently being renamed as Great Wakering just to um, stay on, <laughs> on trend. <laughs> Great Wakering is known. It's in the Guinness Book of Records. It's amazing for having the lowest average rainfall in the British Isles. Okay. Wow. That's usually the response. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say something else. No, no something far more interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> However, there is a connection with Dr Feelgood and Great Wakering. Is the drummer they had before the big figure was actually a military man, and I can't remember his name, but he used to play in the British Legion in Great Wakering, a classic sort of rural British Legion with a huge right. clubhouse, and he used to play there. Now, growing up in South End, which is the, the, the main town down there, now a city, at that time, it was like the feel-goods, you know, mm. you, even if you didn't know them, and I was a bit too young at that point to really know their music, but they were just around, they were like our band, and the local paper, the Evening Echo, the fabulous tone that it is always used to feature them Mm -hmm. and of course suddenly they started to become popular and like really popular uh, as you know and that brief burning moment sort of 75 to 77 where they were everywhere and then afterwards as well when they had their sort of commercial singles bit and it was amazing and i saw them in 1977 at the curzel which was the big venue yeah yeah and I was only 11, um, wow. but my dad, it was brilliant, my dad knew the owner right. of the Curzel, so he would take me in and I'd sit in the box with a sort of Coca-Cola and be terrified by these bands that were playing there, but wanted to see them. And to see the Feelgoods, it was their first gig with Jippy, and it was just, a, or the first gig in Southend, amazing. You know, that, that connection, yeah, yeah. which I've now, by looking at, you know, Slade footage of that time, is is not dissimilar at all, that sort of, almost sort of football crowd yeah, yeah. there just chanting mm. the, the audience as part of the show rather than, you know, you were used to seeing shoegazy, long hairs doing mm. their thing. Yeah. And it was just that sort of sense of theatre. To see Brillo doing all that stuff in the white suit, you know, sort of the angel and the devil with him and Wilco when you see the footage of the films... And it was amazing, and Lee was always around town. You would just sort of see him, and it was a bit like, oh, you know, there's Lee Brillo, like you'd see your, your, the cool. postman or something. Yeah, looking like something out of the Sweeney. Oh, yeah, and, <laughs> and he was only 41 when he died. I know. 
I know. And, and we thought, I, I suppose we thought that was quite old then. Well, then. Well, he seemed old. Yeah, he seemed Even when, old. He was when, seemed when he was old. in the band or yeah. something sort of <coughs> very adult about Lee Brillo, you know? Yes. They were certainly grown up. When you look at, you know, their peers at the time, you know, even when the Pistols came in, they looked like spotty teenagers. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, yeah. What they fundamentally were. And there was just something about, I think it was the spark on figure who were often yes. sort of left out of the mix, but Very they much. were as central to it as yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, figure looked like a nightclub bouncer. I mean, I saw him at Hope and Anchor in 74, Ramblast yeah, yeah. in 75, and he was riveting. I mean... It's like he dragged the beat, actually, as a drummer. <laughs> He's a bit sluggish, Mr. Figure, but he looked fantastic. Oh, know? yeah. I mean, just that whole sort of slip-back hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, car dealer. You had that, and then you had Sparco <laughs> in his famous bastard suit. Yeah. And he was doing that, you know, backwards and forwards yes. with Wilco. And, and it was like... I mean, it was. It was pure theatre. Yeah. yeah. It was that thing of, this is... We are going to put on a show. You're, you know, you're going to know we're on. Mm-hmm. And you will be entertained because we're not going to really leave you any other option. So it was a really big thing growing up, and I can say this now. I know it's a fairly confessional scene, your your podcast, but <laughs> I can still, if I really want to get a little sort of feeling of extreme discomfort in about 78 i went to a restaurant with mum and dad and and obviously you know in the 70s you didn't really go to restaurants you went to a bernie inn for your birthday or something like that but we for some reason we're in a restaurant called le bistro on london road (laughs) le bistro very good and it was the full candle was it it italian Uh, It, it, it was it was something in that area. It was like General Continental. Yeah, it was spelt with an E A U X. No, <laughs> we were sitting in there, and Lee Brillo came in with Shirley. You know, I now know to be Shirley, his his wife, and he came in. He was having his meal, and I was oh, you know, oh my god, it's Lee Brillo, and my mother. I can I can still see it now, sitting opposite me, bent over to him again. Are you Dr. Feelgood? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, oh, yes, I am, ma'am, yes, I am. Oh, he was polite. Oh, yeah, lovely. He so, yes, I am. And she went, my son. Like that emotion to me. And I just thought, oh, crikey, Moses. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I, I don't think of it often, but when I do, I can still feel that sort of horror uh, of her saying The cringe. That. But what was lovely was then the respect they got, and the, the piece I wrote there was just when Oil City was coming out, so before... Yeah. That's Julian Temple's film. Julian yeah. Temple yeah. film yeah. from 2010. Which is great. Oh. Yes. It's fantastic. It's amazing, it? isn't it's it? It's fantastic. It's really terrific. And, and that whole, the way it sort of explored the, the psychogeography of the Thames Delta... Yeah. And how weird, you know, if you've never been to Canby... It's such a weird place. It, it's it's astonishing, you yeah, know? Yeah. And I remember some northern friends just saying to me, I had no idea there were places like that in the yeah, south. Yeah. Yes. And the whole thing is all below the wall, you know, the sea level. That's and right. And it's extraordinary. I mean, just the, ge- the, the physical geography of the place. It's oh, really yeah. Good. And, like, in the middle of it, there's a sort of, what, an abandoned cafe which was like a slightly art deco curved cafe mm. sort of yes bang in the middle sort of the, the labworth cafe which has been done up has it before. right well predictably yeah um, good but but in a very down home yeah. way the breakfast of 
fabulous. Right. And then there's a massive oil refinery. Yes. yes. As it, hence, Royal City yeah. Confidential. Because, I mean, the major oil refineries have sort of gone Yeah, now. yeah. But they, with the storage tanks, the storage. they're full of oil right. with a pipeline up to Heathrow. Because yeah. last time I, it was many years ago, yeah. there's still the flames coming out of the, you know, burning yeah. off the gas. And yeah. 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 Well, from where I live, obviously up on the hill looking down. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's amazing because at night it could be Manhattan. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And I like to, or Vegas. Yeah. yeah. I like to romantically think as I stare at the stars but, but and look I, over the refineries. The other thing you can is also these really tacky mansions basically built by gangsters. <laughs> the, 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 there are a lot of them, and I, they're, they're hideous, <coughs> but they are displays of wealth by people whose wealth is suspect, to say the least. <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly comment on that, seeing as most of my family live there. But, um, <laughs> but, but no, but that, the amazing thing is, you know that house on the mainland would be like four hundred thousand yeah, pounds yeah. more. You know, yeah. but it is amazing, and they are just crammed in. But it is brilliant because yeah, yeah. That, their little seafront there, the Strip, yeah. has got the movie star cinema. That star, as in Ringo, two R's. <laughs> oh, superb! And it is superb because it's like a really small family-run business. I think they run the arcades as well. And you can go and see a main, you know, major film for fiver, right? And the popcorn's two quid. And although it's a bit of a further drive, I'd much rather do that than than go to the cool. the multiplex. Even though that is a multiplex, four little cinemas. Oh, it is. A and a waxwork of a stormtrooper when you go in as well. <laughs> that's from Star Wars, uh, not that's from a sort of course. Course. <laughs> yeah. you know, Just not, to be not, clear, not the local Tory MP. <laughs> <laughs> No, there are. Yes, that's um, another story. Moving on Hello from that there. part of the world. Oh, yes. One of the things that I love about you is that you adore like 70s and 80s soul and disco, mm. but you also like prog yes. and art rock. Yes. And the fall. Yeah, I adore can, them. I mean, can you explain that to us? Um, I think working in record shops, which is what I did from, from 13 years old, does give you a broader taste. And I think working with older people, because obviously a lot of my friends were five, ten years older, or people I work with, and that whole, you know, that power of the recommendation, Mm -hmm, and I'm sure people say that to you in many different ways, you know, it was so powerful. It was like, you know, my my mate Phil giving me talking heads, you know, lending me more songs about buildings and food, and I I couldn't believe Mm -hmm, it, which I might not have found otherwise, or then I might have come to them at once in a lifetime time or something like that. Mm. And I think there is also just something about South End where it is quite a melting pot, and you would hear, you could walk past places, and obviously you had the the Riverman Blues, which you had every... I don't know why I said Riverman Blues like that, but (laughs) it's... uh, Well, I did that out, obviously. No, 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 but it was like, really, you know, everything was like, you know, if you you weren't sort of playing a version of Lou Lewis's greatest hits, you were sort of, you know... Yeah, yeah. So there was that. There was this psychedelic underground that was there that was really interesting, and, and then you had... Lamatt, who were a sort of quite a big group in that sort of early 80s revival that came out of the Leapers, who were a mod band. So you had all the, all the things happened around several pubs there. So it did give you a broader taste. And the soul thing, you know, it's Essex. And if you wanted to go out, you heard proper jazz funk. You know, yes. St Luther, as yeah. we like to call him, the patron saint of Essex. 
Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, Lacey Lady and the sort of well, that was Rump, yeah, Rumford, yeah, Rumford, yeah, 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 and and, and, and uh, Cortinas with people's names. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it, it makes sense that your first book was about sheep yeah, rather yeah. than Doctor Feelgood. Yes. Furry dice, the furry, furry dice hanging from the oh, the rearview mirror. Yeah, you know, it was there, and it's. It, you know, many books have been written on it now, but you know the the way Essex is portrayed and, mm. and, and viewed by the, the wider world. But to me, you know that the furry dice thing and everything is 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 undeniably yeah, there. Yeah. It's yeah, part yeah. of it, and I really love it because I know you know I have friends who are like that, yeah, yeah. and I have friends who are art rockers, and I have friends who, are, and it's all that blend that's there. And I just think that worshipping of like you know those great jazz funk records from like the late 70s into the 80s yeah, yeah. that a lot of people still turn their nose up at and i just think you're you're missing a real treat here yeah you really are yeah great. yeah, yeah. We're, well, we're, we're pretty fond well, we're of huge lot like luther for, yeah. for, for a start yeah probably the greatest voice that, one of the greatest voices in i mean despite music. what you've just said chic obviously were in um, in one sense very arty Weren't they? And the piece that we're featuring, you wrote for Mojo Collection, yep. two thousand one. Niall talks about how he was in London and saw Roxy music, yeah, yeah, and yeah. how seeing Roxy really shaped yeah. the way they designed yeah. Chic. Right. But, but the, the other interesting detail here is how punk, to some extent, came out of the Furry Dice. But the London equivalent, the Sombrero, basically a gay club but a disco mm. club, and all, all right. the first generation of punks would be down a Sombrero. So. They came out of that, and then subsequently the Spandai Ballet lot also came sort of edge mm. came out of that, that scene. Yeah. So it's kind of unreported the sort of the the, the jazz funk influence of British pop. Well, <laughs> I mean it's true. Lacey, like you know, um, John Lydon and Susie Sue and Billy yeah, Idol, yeah. people like that were often around that scene. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, Spandau. So like once they learned to sort of, you know, they got to a certain level, they they suddenly wanted to be. You know, Beggar and Co. That's and, right. And, yes. and, yeah, yeah. And I think that whole tranche of high tension, light of the world, yes. links into Beggar and Co. Incognito, unless we forget Level Forty Two. Yeah. Level Forty Two were vastly important. Yeah, yeah. And their first proper album to me is as central to the early eighties as Remain in Light or Risque, late seventies, but that pass um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean it, that, that really meant yeah, a yeah. great deal so I, I think you're absolutely right that scene came from there and Niall w- w- what was fascinating about him and I mean he obviously said it many many times now but that, that art thing that was definitely there he was a hippie he was a bohemian his parents were bohemians you know, he'd been around the yeah, New yeah. York scene. He'd played with Hendrix. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he jammed with them all, really. And it's almost like, you know, when you first hear him say it, you think, really? Mm-hmm. And then you look, and it is that, you know, the Zelig figure or whatever. He was there. He he did do these yeah, yeah. things. So when he chic happened, you know, disco was the vehicle of the moment that yeah. he. Got on, and he said, you know, many times if it had been country and western, he'd have done that, or if it had been heavy metal, he'd have done that. You know, they were in a band called The Boys beforehand, who were playing Thin Lizzy songs. They were right. called Boys because yeah. the boys are back in town. Right, right. And it was the right. same core: Bernard and Niall, mm. Tony Thompson on the drums, and Rob Sabino on the on the. You can see that mime I'm doing there, <laughs> listeners, uh, on the uh, on the keyboard. I can almost hear. <laughs> yeah, <it>. absolutely. <laughs> but it was the same lineup, and yeah. then they would add 
the girl vocalists and Luther on backing vocals yeah, yeah. and become chic and do the same thing. So the versatility was phenomenal. But it was only when Risque came out that I really thought, there's something going on here, that there's something else. And then I sort of, you know, like most people, we, we left it, you know, because disco sucked. Never really sucked around my house, but you know what I mean? It's a chic sort sure. of faded so quickly yeah, in the yeah. public imagination. And, I, you know, when now it almost seems like a, a linear thing. Oh, yeah, well, he produced Bowie and that was that. Yeah. You know, I remember at the time, you know, you must have, you were writing about it. Yeah, yeah. Said, He's gone with him? You know. I, I mean, there are kind of all kinds of complications. I mean, he himself talks about his cocaine habit getting madly out of yes. control. And becoming obsessed by working in the studio without a band in the room and so on and so forth. So yeah. actually the sound of the records now is producing got worse and worse. And, and, and I mean, it was effective to an extent. I mean, Let's Dance was a huge hit and so on oh, and so forth. Yeah. But he talks in interviews around 1981 about how the disco sucks thing in America was killing, was killing the band. You know, he was really aware mm. of it. Really oh, yeah. aware of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I saw the Hammersmith Odeon Of show, course you did. I'm uh, so 79. envious. I'm so and, envious. And it really, I mean, genuinely, this is no sort of nostalgic hyperbole. It really was one of the mm. ten greatest shows I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah. It was transcendental. Mm. And, you know, always grateful that I was there for that. And just also, just to mention, because your first book, Everybody Dance, yep. Chic and the Politics the of disco. disco. Love that subtitle. Yeah, well, I really... I'd just come off doing my degree. I I went back to university later in life, and I'd done a lot of soul and civil rights and things like that, so I was very sort of attuned to that at the time. And I was just fascinated by the way that... how denigrated disco had become. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this... You know, even in the early noughties when I was doing it, disco... You know, had started to have the revival, but it was all like school disco and and yeah, yeah. glitter balls and yeah. well, hey, you know, flares. And I think there was a feeling that once I don't know, Sly had answered Marvin with "There's a riot going on" to what's going on, the sort of the civil rights soul and that militant thing mm-hmm. sort of ended in some way, and then everyone was just partying, and that was the end of it. But obviously, partying to me was as important sort of political perspective yeah, yeah. Than, than, you know, making very overt statements. And I think, you know, to quote a, an old album title, if you want to defeat the enemy, sing his song. You know, th- they were positioned yeah, themselves yeah. right in the heart yeah. of, of Central America, yeah. which is why, you know, they wanted to stop it, because it was like, what's all these blacks and gays doing it, running up? Exactly. And having fun and having a good time, you know, how yeah. dare they, yeah. basically, I mean, get to well, enjoy themselves? What is interesting is that when... Disco stopped selling big numbers. It actually became blacker and funkier. You yep. listen to stuff from around 81, 82, 83. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely staggeringly good, you know. And people, still people like David Mancuso, the loft, yep. putting on loft parties, were still keeping that, that stew bubbling away, but the broad mass of white America walked away from it. You know? Absolutely. You know, again... You know, we all know what it's like. We sort of think, well, July the sixth, nineteen seventy-nine, disco sucked. Yeah, the, yeah. You know that. You know that was a very specific localized event. Yeah, yeah. Which obviously was reported, but then it was a bit like the day after. That was it. You know, you couldn't get a disco record made anywhere. Yeah, and of course, yeah. you know, Lip Sync Funky Town, which is seen as still one of the. It was a year later. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, and yeah, Sheik's yeah, yeah. Good Times went to number one after that. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. but the, the point's absolutely right, and I think. When it did go sort of more underground, obviously it then became garage and then became house. Right. 
but you had some you say those records of the early yeah. 80s just that sound like D-Train you yeah absolutely mm. and also and some fantastic Italo disco started yes. appearing the Italians sort of had their own disco scene and some really great mm. records yeah you know? no absolutely and that really became the basis of what you know the, the, the Acid House yeah yeah mm. sort of revolution yeah. Why don't we jump from your first book oh. to your new book? My new book? <laughs> your so new very book, seamless. Which, which, is, which is called Whatever Happened to Slade When the Whole World Went Crazy. <laughs> crazy, as in, Mama, we're all crazy now. Indeed. Which was the, actually the first Slade single I bought. I think I've still got it. Yeah, wonderful. Red Polydor. Oh, yeah. Oh, Gorgeous. It was something like that, because you always got the... I mean, I, I know they did do paper labels. Oh, oh, there's going to be an intense geek moment here. But, um, but there was Strap something in. about the moulded plastic of a, of a Polydor label with a right. black square yeah. Yeah. and a big black middle. It was, yeah. it was almost like a sort of, I don't know, uniform or something. You know, the, the record was about to go into battle when you put it on the, on the turntable. There was no, I don't know... No, the, the fainness of a, a you know, Boland was great with his picture on there, but it wasn't like a big red and black. Bounce, no, I know what you mean. Know. I do know what Straight you mean. Even so, Bowie on RCA didn't have that. No. So Slade, let's yeah. talk about Slade. What yeah. happened do we start? to Slade? Where do we start? I mean, my memory is seeing them do because I love you and the way you describe so beautifully in the book Thank on you. top of the pops and just thinking. What the fuck is this? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, the, with the violin I know. and everything. Is that your one your first memory of Slade? Um, what, tell, tell me, tell us what you, you remember. My first real memory of Slade was Goodbye to Jane, and they were the first group. Thank you. The Beatles were in the family, you know, the, and they'd been handed yeah, yeah. down to me. So I was obsessed with the Beatles already by the time I was five. Is it any wonder I ended up like I am? Um, but then Slade, seeing him on top of the pops, you know, I liked Boland, but he was a bit frightening. <laughs> Bowie was. You know, just another country. Well, Bowie was more frightening than Noddy Holder. Oh, well, <laughs> <Bowie>. <laughs> oh yeah, well. <laughs> but I think that element of cartoon, Bowie, you know, you, Bowie just felt older. I mean, obviously, right. you're working in the mind of a seven-year-old here. Sure. Bowie just felt older and remoter and all of that. And you had this bloke shouting at you in a Czech, you know, tartan suit with a top hat on. And then Dave Hill doing Being Dave Hill. But there was Goodbye to Jane... There was a video, there was a company called Caravel, and a very difficult... I've really tried to research it. Maybe some of mm. your listeners might know. Maybe even Caravel are listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know that golden age of Top of the Pops needed a film. They needed something yes. before the promos had really kicked yes. in. So they would just go and sort of knock something up yeah, and yeah. then it would to be shown on Top of the Pops. And there was a thing for Goodbye to Jane where they were dressed in white coats running around Greenwich Observatory <laughs> and sort of, like, pointing at things and, like, you know, being <laughs> scientists and stuff like that. And I... I genuinely... Believed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> scientists. But I genuinely... You know, never seen it anywhere else. And then there's one clip of it in YouTube somewhere, like, this terrible, like, 10th generation thing. But at least it proves it was there, because I just thought I'd, right. I'd invented right. it. And when I listen to Goodbye to Joe now, the, just that excitement. You know, there's one thing you have to do when you hear a Slade record. You want to get on your feet. Yeah. 
so I had the poster on my wall, Noddy pointing an Anabas poster, um, <laughs> with the, and the big Anabas badge. You remember, you used to get them, and and you know, his eyes followed me around the room, and I was a bit scared, but also delighted. And then it was that year, you know, that golden year of all their really, really big hits. And, you know, we didn't... You know, obviously at that point, I didn't really know about Don's car crash or anything like that. But what I do know, and this united me, I was having a chat with David Stubbs a couple of years ago, and I had to put it in the book, just that sense of disappointment when my friend Stan went, only went to number two. Right. It was like... I mean, I think I was almost in tears. You know, it's this really bizarre <laughs> feeling that they had... And the same thing happened with him. You know, he felt exactly the same thing. So Slade were... were excellent i think at getting into that sort of niche between childhood and adolescence a first taste of of sort of real rock if you like right which was to prove hugely detrimental to them because they ended up sort of pleasing nobody right because no one quite knew who you know to like them and you wouldn't have had serious heads like yourself apart from enjoying to stomp to them you know, it wasn't Dark Side of the Moon, man. I first remember them as a skinhead band. I'm by far the oldest person yeah, yeah. in this room. And opening manager maker, and there's a picture of this band all dressed as skinheads. And I was being beaten up every day at school by skinheads at right. the time. So this absolutely kind of, I was going to have nothing to do with them. And they sort of disappeared for like two years after their skinhead thing. And then suddenly they it's a completely different thing. It takes a while here. to grow your hair, actually. <laughs> <laughs> as you would know, as you would know. Well, the, the first of the Slade pieces we're featuring on my page is, in fact, from 1969. And it's yes. Rob Partridge talking to, to Jim Lee yes. and Dave Hill yeah. about being skinheads. Yeah, but it turns out they, they were fake. They were completely fake totally skinheads. Totally, totally yeah. fake. That was, totally. that was um, what's his name? Chaz, Chaz, Chaz Chandler's. Chaz Chandler and Keith Ultham, who, who was yes. there. Yes. Uh, press guy yeah he was their first major press guy skinheads had become the thing yeah, and yeah. they were reported everywhere and Slade were trying to break through they'd, they'd come from the West Midlands as the in-betweens come to London mm. and become Ambrose Slade right. signed to Fontana and they couldn't get a hit you know they did yeah. some really interesting stuff they'd spent three months in the Bahamas and absorbed yes. all this American music right so they're playing "Born to Be Wild" in their set before it had been released right. as a single, yes. okay. and that is uh, the version. The version of that on Slade Alive, of course. Oh yeah, yeah no, that. absolutely. And you listen to that. You know, Slade Alive is another you know huge part of their their career, and they couldn't get a hit. Chaz came in, and obviously Chaz brought with him his sort of coterie of experience. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, you know, you had yes, they were a provincial band and all that, but suddenly, you know, they're signed to the Gunnel Agency. And they got Keith Oldham and sorry, Gerard Mankiewicz is taking their pictures. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hoffman takes their first skinhead pictures. And they drunkenly, they had a drunken sort of evening. Oh, wouldn't it be fun if say became skinheads? That's the way they're getting the papers. And Keith said this to Chaz. <laughs> I can almost hear the conversation. <laughs> Woke up the next morning and thought, oh god, what did I say last night? Yeah. Oh no, they're not scared. They're far too nice to be skinheads, and their music isn't really anything to do with skinheads. <laughs> That's right. No. No. However, Chaz said, Why are you? I won't do the Chaz impression. <laughs> um, <laughs> he did come from Wolverhampton. No, he went, Why are you? You've just been up to Barbers. No, I won't do the impression. Oh, God, no. Anyway, he'd taken them and they'd decked them all out yeah. in, in their yeah. crombies and their, their boots. And, and he'd got, taken them up Greek Street and had their hair cut. And he said, Well, it's too late. He's done it. And Keith was <laughs> Oh, my God, what am I going to do now? 
But what it did do, it didn't sell them any more records, no. but it got them everywhere. Yes. You know, and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, there's this marvellous thing, they were, I think they were playing a student union ball in Bristol or somewhere, booked as Ambrose Slade, and the last time we'd seen them, they'd all been shirts off and singing about, you know, new beginnings and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and then they're looking at the paper, like, oh, yeah, so here's the band coming tonight. Oh, my God! <laughs> and there they all are in their boots. <laughs> So again, you know, that marvellous press machine that they had then, it was in the papers, you know, Bristol Students' Union turned down band, band one, you know, yeah, money it for and everything. It and worked. it worked. It uh, worked. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But where it didn't work was musically. You know, there's that great clip of them on the first time they were on telly on a sort of kids-ish magazine show. And they're all dressed as, you know, bother boys. Yeah, yeah. Playing Martha, my dear. Jim playing the most delicate violin piece. It's, and it's quite tap-esque, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, all over ringing. What's this shit? <laughs> yeah. You know, he's the virtuoso violinist who's in the Staffordshire Youth Orchestra. And they're playing Martha, my dear, but dressed as skinheads. You know, they sort of said that soon their gigs, you know, all the skinheads would come to it and then realise they weren't sort of playing Liquidator or exactly, anything like yeah. that. And yeah, like, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. But what they did do and what came out of that was get down and get with it because that retained right. the sort of boots yes. element yes. of it. And that was a sort of transitional look where the hair started to grow out. Yeah, yeah. But they, you know, and of course the hair, that gave Dave Hill his phenomenal look because while it was growing out, he thought, oh, I can keep cut, my fringe. Cut the fringe. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And bring that down. And let's yeah, be yeah. honest, there was no one quite like Dave Hill in 70s pop. <laughs> no, there, there really wasn't, was no. there? One of the things you write beautifully about the, in, in the book is is just the you know, very working class identity, a sort of reaction, if you like, to, to sort of middle class floweriness. Mm. Pr- proudly sort of black country yeah. and the misspellings of course and so we're just going to hear a clip from John Tobler's 1975 audio interview with them where oh, they brilliant. where they talk about this so brilliant. do you think that the misspelling served a purpose at the time yeah it gave people a the, re- the, the way the misspelling came about was how people used to write on the walls back on in the black country, on the laboratory walls. It was the sort of slang, how we speak up there was the slang way, and we spelt it as we say it up there, you know, because I love you. And we spelt it like that. No, got, when we got the acetate, because I love you, which became because I love you, it's because I love you. Oh, I see. You know, and we well, have to get down and get with the big rag, we can't have that as a title. And we just got the thinking caps out of what? I love that. We've got our thinking caps on. Um, <laughs> um, I think that's Noddy and then Dave. Uh, yeah, I think that might have been Jim coming you in there just a little bit. Jim yeah, the, the, the second bit. The second bit is Jim. I wasn't sure. Uh, I think that's Dave coming in at the end there. Oh, you think so? You think it's 
Jim and then his nod, and then Jim. Oh, and there's then, three. Okay, yeah, okay. So I, I wasn't. Too but it's sure. like you're listening to a foreign language here. So <laughs> I love the black country accent. To be honest, absolutely love you know, it. I, I adore the black country accent. I do. I do. And I don't. He said it sounds patronising. Yes, my favourite accents in the UK. Yes. All right. Okay. All right. How many misspelt song titles were corrected and had to be corrected back during the publishing of this book? No, it was quite interesting I, I i'd sort of when it went to the first editor or the first pass the editor I, I highlighted all the ones that were actually to be spelled yeah, like that case, but, and one of the yeah. things is you have to remember when they stopped you know because you almost get in that habit and you want to start spelling far far away <laughs> and sort of like, yeah. or how, how does it yeah. 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 things like that so they stopped it pretty quickly. I mean, they stopped... Merry Christmas, everybody. Xmas, everybody, was the last sort of... And whether that really is a... Yes. Yeah, know, that's not yeah, yeah. And my friend Stan had the the N reversed on it in a bit of a sort of Abba way. <laughs> so really, it was squeeze me, please me, was a, a peak... Peak uh, misspelling. Misspelt youth, as I like to call it. <laughs> but, you know, it's there. And I, I think that thing, and I think what's really important, I say this in the book, is, is the way they spelt love, L-U-V was in that way that... And I think that really did endear them to sort of, like, the teenage kids. Because that whole thing of L-U-V love, not L-O-V-E love. Yeah, you know, yeah. That sort of yeah. transience of it and the, and the beauty of that moment is, is really captured in that song. I think that song's one of the most important songs of the 70s because it's got that mixture of, you know, hard and soft. There's a definite aggression. There's that sort of gypsy thing that comes in when they all start, you know going off uh, backwash maybe those were the days but that sort of thing but just as a calling card it's like beautifully written it's a great song and you know when you hear a cover version of it you just think yeah that's you know yeah. it stands the test yeah. of time yeah, where yeah. you know may- maybe squeeze me please me doesn't yeah um, but yeah. no amazing so we're featuring this Lester Bangs cover story for Let It Rock yes that came out in 73 but by my reckoning he must have been with them in Liverpool in late 72. I can't see any evidence they played in Liverpool in 73. Mm. So it was obviously a piece that, I don't know, for whatever reason, was, was published much later. And Les absolutely loves it. He says, Slade and its audience have more energy, more raunch and vitality than the sagging corpus of rock has seen in many a moon. I walked into my first Slade concert totally unprepared and got shook straight up. It was so powerful and so beautiful, you almost couldn't take it in. You almost had to leave the room. You know, I mean, you can understand why Slade appealed to Leicester. I mean, he almost compares them to the MC5, which mm. I think is a bit of a stretch. A bit of a stretch. But you can imagine that, that, just the live well, the excitement. I, I, I mean, you know, we sort of forget that that sort of straight-ahead rock and roll has virtually evaporated. I mean, mm. we're right in the centre of the prog years, mm. you, you know. I mean, punk was yet to happen. In a curious kind of way, like Slade were like a proto-punk band, you yeah. know. Yeah, I mean... Dare I say that? Well, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, you'd probably find that someone like John Lydon liked Noddy Holder's voice. I mean, it's an incredible voice. Yeah. It was like a sort of punky version of, I don't know, John Lennon when he was, like, screaming out rock and roll songs in, in, in Hamburg. Well, I think the Lennon comparison was made quite a few times. Yes. And allegedly, you know, there are quite a few allegedly yes. in the same story. But obviously... Lennon knew Chaz Chandler because they were on, sure. you know, on the circuit together in the 60s and they were recording in 
Abbey Road? No, no, America uh, Record Club. Oh, the record oh right. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, he was doing Mind Games. Right. And Slade went and did Merry Christmas, everybody there. Of and evidently he came in to see Chaz afterwards, after the band had gone mm-hmm. and heard on playback. And he said, who's that? He sounds like me. So, uh, you know, yeah. it's it's a great good for business yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. Not, but he does. when You know, I think people think, and that's because they hear him a lot doing the shouting, actually he's got a very tender and expressive voice. And you, you know, how does it feel is a perfect example of that. Right. You know, he, he is a much better singer than people give yeah. him credit for. The other thing is, I've heard from people who met him that he's actually one of the nicest people sort of around. And that sort of quality of likability came through from, from the get-go. You yeah. Know, the, the, you know, you, you talked about sort of someone being sort of magical or mm. weird or whatever. He was, came over as a sort of nice bloke. Well, I've interviewed both Noddy and Dave, and all I will say is that Dave, who, as you've already intimated, is one of the most preposterous sort of figures <laughs> in history, but took, took himself a great deal more seriously than Noddy did. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think you know the, the the classic thing with Dave, and yeah, I've said this many times. He'll say, you know, he came up with that phrase, you know, you write them and I'll sell them. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he would get dressed separate from the band because he knew Jim, especially as I've said many times. You know, Jim always looked like he wanted to be in, you know, Edgar Broughton or. Yeah. <laughs> Or somewhere else, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't want to really be doing that sort of thing. Uh, so it was Jim and, and H were the furthest apart in that way. Yeah. And you know, he'd come out, and I think there was one time. You know, Noddy went through a phase of wearing big old spiv tires. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he walked out of one photo shoot because Noddy was in that, and then Dave appeared, evidently dressed like a cockerel. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he said something like, "I can put up with Arthur English." One for the kids. I put up with uh, Arthur English here, but I'm not, you know, standing around here with that big chicken or something and walked out. So th- th- there was always yeah. that thing there. But Dave, you know, the very fact that Dave had the landlord's son from the local pub yeah. designing his clothes, right? Yes. You know, just fascinating. And and he and then his wife both designed predominantly for Dave, but he did the others as well. He made all the waistcoats for Dave and and uh, Jim and Noddy's tartans and things. And it was such a unique thing. When you consider all the others were using, uh, you know, the finest London boutiques, or Bowie was over in Japan or whatever, you know, they were using the Publican Sun, uh, who would, you know, Dave would arrive at their terrace in his roller, uh, or his Jensen, uh, and then his roller, (laughs) and you come out, you know. And and there's one of my favourite tales in the book, Steve Megson, who's the designer, said, they went backstage to see Bowie at Earl's Court, because you know Slade's popularity was thus it got to a point where you know, became that big thing of who's going to play Earl's Court right. when that became open as a rock yeah. venue in 73 and Slade were actually booked to play there first but then Bowie saw that Mel Bush promote and he thought right we'll get Bowie in first and then Floyd played two nights the first mm-hmm. sort of arena show of Dark Side of the Moon but they went backstage Steve Megson the, the designer and Dave Hill and he was talking to this bloke. And he's going, you all right? You know, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I won't do the voice. And he said, uh, oh, you play a bit of guitar? Yeah, I play a bit of guitar, yeah. yeah. All right, mate, you know. And Steve Mike said, you know who that is, don't you? He went, no. He said, that's Mick Ronson. Oh. Who's he? 
He's David Bowie's oh, guitarist. Christ. All right, well, you know, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, <but> sort of. <laughs> sort of. Wow. And, and you know that, you know, you said if it had been Noddy or Jim, they would have, you know, yes. been all right. And so would have Don. But that, you know, and that, yes. what, and that is what makes Dave so unique in, in the middle of all this. Unless we forget, it was Dave's idea in the first place to get two guitarists in the band and not have a lead and not have a rhythm. Right, you know, because it was all very much as you remember, yeah, yeah. on rhythm and uh, yeah. Harrison on lead, and it was like, well, let's have two interchanging lead guitarists mm. and three sometimes when when Jim when would do Jim. it as well, <laughs> which you know again that sort of bloister bloister cult right there or, or whatever before it's time. Yeah. So coming back to your MC five point, Lester Bangs MC five point, you know, you listen to Slade alive. And you listen when they lock in on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it opens with 10 years after Hear Me Calling and ends with Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild. Right, this version of it at the end, I mean, they basically just leave the stage with feeding back amps. And it's like, you know, that's... Yeah, it's not teeny bop. It's not teeny bop. No, no, that's right. And and, and I think, you know, Dave, yes, of course, you know, he looks like that. I'm showing a picture of my book now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he's, he's... you know, but he did. You know, he did bring something unique, as all four oh, of them did to, sake, the, yeah, to the band. Absolutely. Let's talk about Merry Xmas, everybody. Yes, because it's come out for Christmas. It this is. is sort of our Christmas episode. Yes, it is. Merry um, Christmas. And I, I don't suppose <laughs> any coincidence the book was published. Just before Christmas, <laughs> um, so so this is probably the most famous right Christmas. The answer pop to the song. pub trivia question of which song has made it into the top ten every year since it's been released, or whatever every decade since it's been released, yeah, yeah, yeah. not every year, but you know, it's done that every decade, it's got in at least once. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was recorded in New York. Yes, as a just almost like a. I mean, but to just give us briefly the story of the writing of it, and then the, and well, it was, the it was two, two things that sort of came together. Chaz Chandler was always with a you know an eye to furthering his band. I mean, he adored Slade. You know, of all the, the turns he'd had, it didn't end well with Hendrix. I mean, I think they stayed in cordial you know cordial terms, but yeah, yeah. You know, once Electric Ladyland and Hendrix taking loads of time, he didn't want mm. that. With Slade, you know, he followed a sort of textbook pattern. He got the number ones coming in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started them to break America and he wanted them to do a film. But he also said, you know, boys, it would be a great idea to do a Christmas record. And, of course, still at that point, Christmas records were seen as largely quite naff. Yeah. They were carols or novelty songs. Mm-hmm. Are they not still? Just to interject. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. We don't have long enough. <laughs> not around my house, mate. Um, <laughs> I just say two words, the waitresses. Um, anyway, the record, by the way. Not just I know what boys like. Uh, yes. Christmas wrapping. Or Christmas, Christmas wrapping. Christmas Just quickly mention that we, we are... We are also featuring this piece that the late Pete Silverton wrote mm. in December 2015 for The Independent. Peace and Harmonies, Christmas songs that still have the power to bring us together. That's just a beautiful piece about his, just his, his love, of, his love of, of, of Christmas pop, which mentions Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah of course. I mean, oh, I, so the, the, the other factor in that was John Lennon had done Merry Christmas War Is Over yeah, that's the right. year before, or the year before in Britain. Great, great record. And... Jim Lee's mother, the other factor in that, yes. our mother-in-law to be, Mrs. Ganner, said to him, 
well it's all very well Jim you having these number ones but you, you know you should write a Christmas song look at you know you'll never be as big as Bing Crosby and White Christmas <laughs> and that sort of planted the seed so with you know Lennon doing it so if, if he's doing it it must be okay to yeah, do yeah. it Chaz sort of saying come on boys do that and then that coming from his mother he said to Noddy well, what can we do Noddy had a sort of half written bit from the day right Jim came up with you know some structure and things like that and then Noddy in one session just wrote the lyrics to it or most of the lyrics to it the bits that you know which make it so unique and they recorded it because obviously Don I say obviously but Don had a sort of life-threatening accident in the middle of the year where he lost his memory, mm. I mean, nearly died, mm. uh, lost his sense of taste and smell. And they recorded that record. They were going to do it before him, but they were on tour in America. And he literally had to be shown by Jim sort of every piece of it coming together. And he had to record in sections. Right. And it wasn't recorded, you know, all their records to that point, all the main ones have been recorded in Olympic yes. with Alan O'Duffy. So they all sound like that yeah 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 whereas that record doesn't it's no. a very unusual and the fact that they had the harmonium which was actually John Lennon they've been using it on mind games that sound it's like a, sort of something in the folk tradition when you yes. hear it mm-hmm. and believe it or not I heard it in Smith's today it was the first time I'd heard it out on the on the way here and it was just like it is I've said this many times but it's like a warm cloak that goes mm-hmm. on and certainly if you're of a certain age I mean, I, I point to you because you're clearly not. We're, we, you know, we he's more, not of, of any age. <laughs> no, no, it's ageless. A floating sprite. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to me, that record is always going to be 20 to 1 on Christmas Day because it's, you know, waiting for the family to arrive. Got some, you know, we hope you've got the room to spare inside. It's all that stuff that meant a lot to us then that was so simple. It wasn't, you know silver spaceships or you know anything like that it was the christmas we could all understand and i think that's what gives it so much resonance today yeah and it's a great sing-along as well i mean of course you know it's it's interesting what what makes a great christmas record because there are sort of there are obvious themes in terms of lyrical stuff and whatever there are harmonic themes as like you know certain chords are quite Christmassy when following certain other chords and stuff, but yeah, is that that warmth maybe is what makes a, a Christmas record sort of have staying power? Yeah, I, I agree, and I think it doesn't have. You know, you listen to it. There's not a bell on it. There's no jingle bells. No, there's no. no sort of Christmas cliches. Yeah, yeah. On there, very it, good point. It just lets the words and the music do yes. the thing. Yeah. yeah. Yes, the harmonium sort of nods towards it, but that, you know... Yeah, there's nothing trite. It's just that, that it's whole just song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that whole thing of Christmas as a time of sort of goodbyes and hellos and farewell, you know, the, year, the new year is starting and the optimism that comes with that. And I think that really does sum it up. And obviously, lots been written about in 1973 and three-day weeks and power cuts of and course, the time it was. Of course. Yeah. But of mm. course, you put it in that context. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also what Christmas used to be. You know, you used to, as a kid, certainly where I was out there in the driest village in Great Britain, um, <laughs> oh, we just prayed for rain a lot. But, um, <laughs> but you'd, you'd have... Um, you'd have... 
you know, your Christmas present, mm. uh, David Stubbs says in the book perfectly, you know, you'd have your Christmas present, which would last you to your birthday, and then you'd have your birthday yeah, yeah, present yeah. that would yeah. last you to Christmas. Unless, like, my niece, your birthday is two days after Christmas, which oh, is a bit of a fuck oh, up. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't like this uh, non-stop opulence yeah. that we've, we've come to enjoy. No. You know, when my kid, my kid, my child, my kid, man, <laughs> when my daughter was young... Christ. When my daughter was young, you know, the, the things they give away free on comics now were sort of like the things, you, you know, yeah, I'd have under the tree. Wow. And I think it's all tied into that piece. So I think people who are older feel that. People who are younger have that passed down, you know, in the family. Yeah. And obviously, it's lost ground to like Mariah Carey now. And, and of course, the Pogues. Um, I, say, I do love Mariah Carey's Christmas record. Oh, who doesn't? That's a big fan of that. And I, I love also that she's extremely self-aware about because there's this whole meme about her being thawed out. That's like, <laughs> sort of a government project to thaw out Mariah Carey every December. Of like, there's this sort of conspiracy that she's you know she's coming. December's coming, and Mariah yes. Carey. And she did a video of herself breaking the ice that she's been frozen How with a particularly is. high note this year. It is very funny, and I love that she just plays with that yeah, whole yeah. thing. That's and that is a, it is a an outstandingly good Christmas song. No, it is, and I think that the knack, and, you know, Pete says it in his piece there beautifully, and I, I hope to do this, or I have done the same, I hope it maybe isn't as beautiful, but in my introduction uh, of the book, that, you know, the, the trick of a good Christmas record is you actually look forward to it coming again because you don't hear it all the year round yeah, like you no. would do, you know, whatever, mm. Bohemian Bloody Rhapsody. Yeah. But you, you, you sort of... Every, you know, people talk about Whamageddon, oh, sod off, it's great. You know, let me hear Last Christmas, because it's just a lovely record. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a wonderful record. Christmas yeah. time, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, Stop the Cavalry, even though, yeah. is that yeah. a Christmas record or not? Discuss. Yeah. But, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all there, and that's what makes it so fabulous. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and you hear it, and it's like, well, hearing it in Smith's today in King's Cross, it's like, oh... Here we go. Yeah. You know, I've bloody yeah. listened to it all year and been analysed it for a book, but you hear it yeah, yeah. like in the first context. time you've ever heard it. Yeah. I do think Whamageddon is a funny game. For the uninitiated, it's how long can you go in December without hearing Last Christmas. Oh, I got, four or five years ago, I got to Christmas fucking Eve <laughs> without having heard it. <laughs> and then I was in a pub in, like, Brixham. I don't know, I was celebrating Christmas in, in, in Brixham for whatever reason. Christmas and, in Brixham. Christmas in Brixham. <laughs> and we were at the pub, and then it comes on on Christmas Eve at the pub, and I was like, so close. So no. close. Oh. <laughs> no, bring it on. Listen, we've got to move yeah, on sorry, from yes, Christmas. So we've got to go home now. <laughs> so the last piece we're featuring by you is a 2014 piece about Mike Rutherford of yes. Genesis, which is a, a very interesting interview about that group, and it brings us to mention, of course, of your 2013 biography of Peter Gabriel, yes. Without Frontiers, updated in 2018. Yes. And, of course, to the release of Peter's new album, um, which I think we... It's one... I... Zero. I.O. I.O. is I.O. I think. In output. In output, yeah. Right, okay. Not zero. The release, I'm just looking at my terrible hand. Is it one zero? Ten. Yeah, let me just say that. It's like that wrench three two or whatever. Children, children, children. 
to the release of his new album, uh, <laughs> I.O., which is why we've added our second audio interview with Peter Gabriel this week. And Mark is going to tell us a bit about yeah, it. Yeah, well, it's, it's Adam Sweeting in July 92. Adam Sweeting and quite a lot of wind and trains <laughs> going past. <laughs> uh, and we're not talking flatulence. And we're not talking <laughs> flatulence. It, it, it takes place, obviously, at Real World Studios, hence the wind and the, and trains, the, trains. And the trains going past. And he talks about Real World Studios, planning and building it, blah, blah, blah. Setting up real world label, specialising in inverted commas world music, which we'll get onto in a minute. How it links with WOMAD, how certain clients like New Order are regular clients in uh, uh, real world, which was news to me, I must say. His new album is Us, his recording methods. Talks extensively about being in therapy, the breakup of his mm. marriage, Rosanna Arquette and the Playboy photographs. This crops up. And then he, he does. He briefly talks about Genesis. Let's listen to the first clip on, on Genesis. The chamber was in confusion. All the voices shouting loud. I can only just hear a voice quite near saying, "Help me!" I mean, I still think the reason that Genesis have survived is because it grew up out of songwriters rather than out of players. Um, and there is a sort of difference in the way mm. you approach the music. Uh, and um, so being able to string a few chords, melodies and grooves together, I mean, you know, they have the advantage. Um, I think the playing now is much better than when I was there. And I think a few years to practice. <laughs> Sorry? They've had a few years practice. They have, too. Well, and also, you know, it's, it's like uh, Phil's drumming is a wonderful foundation. You know? yeah. It's a great sort of fluid force. Fluid force of Phil Collins' drumming. <laughs> I mean, the one thing is, there's always been a great deal of respect between him and his old band, hmm. and they they effectively bailed him out financially by putting on shows. Very that, much so. Um, so, so there is still a lot of love. Rivetingly, he talks about his early love of soul music, seeing Otis Redding at the Ram Jam Club in Brixton. Yeah, which is just like you know, yeah. um, didn't Tony Keys go to that one of those shows? He certainly saw it. Yeah. Sorry, Tony Keys is a, fellow, a colleague and mm. a part of Rocks About Pages. He talks about surviving punk, which is actually a very good point because a lot of his generation of artists were wiped out. And in fact, he came back with like Games Without Frontiers yeah, and yeah. so on and so forth shortly after them. Then, of course, he talks about world music. Let's listen to the next clip. I mean, the artists sort of hate it. They think it's, think of it as a ghetto. Yeah. You know, and yeah. in, in a way, it was useful for a period, and it's still a useful tag, because, um, I mean, but what I would like to say, you know, is sort of that you know, Frank Sinatra and the Beatles should be in the category of world music <laughs> uh, rather than um, excluding... Uh, so... At the moment, until those musicians and their records get equal opportunity in the record shops and the, mm. the racks and in the radio, uh, it serves some purpose. Shoot, 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, we've talked about that before, I think, on the podcast about what, how do you deal with this phrase world music that incorporates music from Africa, from South America? It is inherently ridiculous. East Asia. It's like, it's an absurd, like, there's no such thing as world music. It's It's absurd, but. From a marketing standpoint, it made a certain amount of, of sense. Of course, you know. So, so it, it's one of those things that, that we all dislike it. But let's say, for example, on on, on our site, are we going to salami slice everything into kind of? It's it's, diff- it's very difficult. They, they said, you know, Spotify have just done their wrapped thing for the year. Yeah, yeah. And evidently, they've they've listed six thousand genres right that are out there. And you're absolutely right. It was a marketing thing in in the sense that, and I worked in record shops then, you know, there was a difference between an Ali Farkatore album right. and uh, a Luther Vandross album. Yes. And it was a bit like, well, you know, the person who's looking for one isn't going to look for the other. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was somewhere to put it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, yeah. you know, if more record shops had pure alphabetical with a yeah. sort of separate classical area maybe or even put the classical in maybe that would solve yeah, yeah. it all but that desire to compartmentalize that that everyone sure. has and because you know again you think in late 82 when he did womad for the first time you know world of music and dance actually world of music and dance yeah. is better than world music well of course but then it was how mm. do you deal with these people you know El Shankar on the old violin you know where where do they fit because right. people weren't really used to it you know we were used to a bit of exotic coming in on certain records yeah but you know he certainly did was one of the protagonists of, of, of you know bringing it wide open yeah, if you yeah. like no. but it is you know very very difficult and problematic yeah <laughs> um, also so, so, just to kind of yeah, wind up on, yeah. on, on this is, is there's a very interesting bit where he talks about having a complicated conversation with Yusuf Islam the erstwhile Cat Stevens about the fatwa on some Russian mm. And th- th- there was some disagreement about it that actually Yusuf Islam was attempting to justify the, the fatwa you know well, he was. We know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, it's. Tri- and then he, he briefly talks about doing movie soundtracks and, and specifically the Last Temptation of Christ and so on. But anyway, it's 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 you know, it, just well, just a sort of quick general conversation about Peter Gabriel and why you chose to write a biography of of him. I mean, I he's one of those we were talking earlier before you arrived about what 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 is his sort of status what is his standing in the kind of you know music music ferment and I found myself thinking you know I actually I really admire Peter Gabriel I don't sort of adore his music or dislike it passionately Mm. I think he's made some very good music and I think he's you know, pretty admirable guy. Even if he did co-found something called The Elders with <laughs> yes. Nelson Mandela and Jimmy Carter. Yes, that's, I know. That, that's on the sort of deficit side. I mean, that, that just, just it just sounds so ridiculous. And Richard Branson. And Richard Branson. <laughs> it's just Christ. getting worse and worse. But I mean, what? Give us, give us your take on on what Peter Peter Gabriel's. What what is he all about? <laughs> Three words or fewer. You start thinking about Peter Gabriel, and you start, you yeah. know, he is yeah. Santa Paul's. You know, you listen to that. It, 
he's an amaranara yeah. Phil Collins yeah, said yeah, that straight yeah, away yeah, yeah. everything is so considered and meticulous yeah. that's why it's taken him 20 years to release an this album this new album and, and the, the amount of versions of things and thought about the process it's always the I process I think only Brian Ferry is, is, is more umming and yes. ahhing if you like yes that's possibly true mm. I think he is an incredible artist I think he true has stayed true to himself throughout yeah, yeah. You know, when he did a covers, you know, you could just imagine someone saying, hey, Peter, why don't you do a cover version? So I'll make it quick. But, you know, he did them all by taking it down oh. and doing it as scything Bernard Herman Orchestra <laughs> and actually making songs like Heroes. So I thought, this is amazing. I'm going to hear da- Peter Gabriel singing David Bowie. Oh, OK. I've heard Peter Gabriel singing David Bowie. <laughs> but, you know, astonishing because he, yeah. he put it out exactly on his terms. Yes. And everything he does like that. Oh, we I think you're right, a lot of his work is to be admired, not loved, but when it is to be loved, you know, Peter Gabriel 3, you listen to things like Family Snapshot, or No Self-Control, or you listen to Us. Us is an astonishing album. You know, here was someone talking about therapy Mm. and all that 20 years before it became, you know, de rigueur, talking about depression, talking about his love life, talking about his marriage breakup. I mean, in this interview, he's incredibly honest. Oh, definitely. I mean, he was the first rock star I ever saw live, actually, in 1972 at Lewisham Town Hall. And... To think that the guy who came on stage that night, you know, in the in the in the dress yeah, and the yeah, fox, yeah, the fox head, head, and you don't sort of expect that guy to sort of sound like he does in this yeah. no, no. interview, which is sort of so self-effacing and kind of thoughtful. And I mean, I. It's where's the sledgehammer? <laughs> where's the sledgehammer? Exactly, isn't it? He's not a sledgehammer, but he knows the value. You know, like with sledgehammer. And with the So album, you know, he realised that actually if I'm going to sort of become a star, not that he necessarily wanted to be, but he'd been mm. incredibly respected. Every album was sort of selling okay, Inroads in America or that. Shot the Monkey was, was a, a hit in America to, to a point. Yes. And then he put himself on the cover of the record looking gorgeous. I mean, he really looked gorgeous. And he has been a bit of a babe, man. Oh, God, he... Not, not <laughs> off. Um, <but laughs> as well, used to say. Or Rosanna Arquette. Or Rosanna She met him. The first time he met Rosanna Arquette was when uh, he bailed... Genesis bailed him out. Right. At, in the rainfield, the bath, and M- Milton Keynes. Because Toto brought her as their guest. Ah! Um, right, and they all hung out backstage, and okay. that's where he met Rosanna. Oh, okay. How funny! So, uh, but no, I think he, I think he's a phenomenal artist. I will always listen to what he has to say and what he, the music he makes. I might not like all of it, but I think he's always someone you want to listen yeah, to yeah yeah and I mean I went back and listened to Lamb Lies Down which I've not listened to for oh. years and there's some there's some extraordinary music on there oh I adore there? I mean I, you know I adore I see I see fan. a different thing yeah. I see Genesis as uh, you know his Genesis as a completely different thing to him solo which you don't always think with, with certain artists sure. it's always a continuation uh, if you like and I mean that thing that really used to bug certainly uh, Tony Banks more than anyone. I mean, Mike Rutherford's a fairly easy guy. 
Hello, dear boy. Yes, yes. Um, son of a naval commander. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, breeding. I mean, just impeccable manners. <laughs> wonderful man. Uh, and Tony Banks is a wonderful man as well. But, the, you know, the interesting thing is they weren't his backing band. No. They were a songwriting collective. And yeah. they were, the, you know, as their documentary was called, some of the parts. Yeah. You know, they were there and doing everything. You know, mm. Tony Banks would write some of the lyrics that people thought... Pe- Peter yeah, yeah, yeah. Written, you know that they were there, and often a point he makes in this interview yeah. very firmly. You know, that it was about writing songs. It wasn't absolutely. Well, they wanted to be the Bee Gees. I mean, that was the thing when they came in and signed to Decca in '67. They wanted to be the Bee Gees. Right. They, they didn't really want to perform, and the whole idea. You know, they were all terrified of performing, and if they could have performed behind a curtain, they would have done. Mm. And it was only he, out of necessity because it took so long to tune up the instruments and the 12 strings and the, and the mellotrons in between the numbers, started this dialogue, which then became the personas, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and off we went. Yeah. And it is so hard, as you say, Barney, when you, you see him now, considering he was so gorgeous, mm. but he was so way out. You know, he's a man that's hardly ever done drugs, you know, it wasn't yeah. like... He does uh, talk about the one time he smoked weed in the city. Yeah, he, 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 he <laughs> fell through a bush on the way home yeah, or something. exactly. Um, you know, in that way, you know, he took it to experiment in the way that he, yeah. he you know, he, he talks the bonobo apes and only releases records on, new, on full moons. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as a commercial instinct to release all your album first mm. and then bring the album out tomorrow from the day we're recording this you know amazing and only he would do that well and he has said you know at various points in my career I've been close to going bankrupt because (laughs) of the the mad things I do but I've had a really interesting life well he still he kept wanting to open a theme park I mean that was always sort of percolating away he wanted to make this incredible sensory theme park in fairness the sledgehammer is a great name for a roller coaster it is <laughs> and there's still time can you imagine what ride shock the monkey will be like <laughs> <laughs> and then the lamb lying down anyway <laughs> coming back to that um the point you made there, Mark, about him surviving punk, you know, I think he had that sensibility. He had his eye on art. Yeah. You know, in that way that Bowie survived it and Robert Fripp survived it and Peter Hamill survived it. You could say that Genesis did it by completely reinventing themselves as an entirely different band. I mean... the the, pop group, really. As a pop group with a lot of black influence and their sort of music. Suddenly that sort of came out. But, yeah, yeah. Anyway... Yeah, Ooh. we do need to talk the, about the final thing. I'd just like to say yes, on Gabriel, or, just before we do, you mentioned Otis Redding. If you listen to the first Charisma album, uh, which yeah. is called Trespass, there's a song on it called "Looking for Someone," and it's the closest prog soul you'll ever find. It's amazing because he is doing that whole wavering voice. It is just yeah, he's such an underrated singer. Is it the only prog soul track ever recorded? Oh no, there's others out there. <laughs> See me afterwards for full details. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I can think of the first yeah. couple of Yes albums had stuff which. Oh, yeah, sweetness. You know, there's, there's definitely a element of prog soul going Yeah. There. Looking for someone. I guess I'm doing that. Trying to find a memory in a dark room. Dirty man, you're looking like a Buddha. I know you. 
we do need to talk <laughs> yes, about no, Shane McGowan. Um, we only heard about his passing in an autumn before recording this episode, so we're sort of ill-prepared, even though we knew he was very yeah. ill. And it's sort of weirdly ironic that it's Christmas time, yeah. fairy tale of New York. What can we say about Shane McGowan, who has not been in a very good state for many, many years, but whose Pogues were an extraordinary group? Well, first, first, first of all, it's astonishing he lasted as long as he did. Yeah. I mean, the, the man drank for Ireland, you know. I mean, very, very peculiar career. I mean, I remember, like, I remember seeing that photograph of him having his ear bitten, his earlobe being bitten off at a Clash gig in 1976, you know. And he had his first band, The Nips, The Nipple Erectors. What's good names for bands? The Nips and the, and the Pogue, Pogue Mahone, Kiss My Ass, you know. Yeah. For a very brief period, the Pogues were a really interesting band. Mm. They sort of brought a directness to traditional music, which lifted it out of folk folkida. Yeah, made it very contemporary. Made it very, very, punky, very right? contemporary. Yeah. Um, some really great songwriting. Yes. You great know. Ly- I mean, the uh, lyrics of, like, Fairy Tale, yeah. for example, and they are, he was oh. an extraordinary writer. But, you know, he ceased being relevant as a musician hideously quickly and that's an entirely consequence of his his lifestyle yeah yeah i think so sad really i mean he had so much more great music in him and he really has been like a ghost right? yeah. occasionally you'd walk you'd walk past him on the street and it was like walking past a sort of ghost mm. do the pogues mean anything to you i think it would be impossible for them not to mean something yeah. to mm. me at the age i am yeah and working in our price sort of 84 85 86 87 88 <laughs> where you know you had those the three albums because it really is the three yeah, albums yeah. there were moments on the other ones but just that thing of hearing Irish music you know taking it out of the all tremendous artists like the Planksteys and the yeah, Christie exactly. Moores and the Moving Hearts which were all great but you had to you know really be in that sort of frame and this was before you know the crack and the irish you know that irishization oh jesus that christ yeah came after you know their their 1994 world cup run and all of that so to hear that to hear this sort of irishness but not done in the way of you know Val Dunican or yeah. or you know Quite rebel songs and with a very punky sort of oh with a punky thing and you know pair of brown eyes or uh, for me it was always rainy night in Soho I could yeah. I just that record yeah yeah just the way you do it and you think well you know this guy's not yeah. thirty I, I mean he's yeah, writing yeah. songs yeah. like that it's yeah. Irish also it's London Irish yes, yes of course you, you know yeah, and yeah. that's that's a really important sort of distinction yes. no and we need we do need to we well, don't need to I'm going to mention the fact that he went to Westminster School he was a public school boy. And For I've out myself again uh, as an old wet. Um, we must have overlapped. For I don't know when he was expelled from Westminster School, but it was in the year when I when I started there. But our friend what, Matt Snow remembers. Well, so our dear friend Matt Snow, yeah, yeah. who's a very important part of Rocks Back Pages 2, and we had a wonderful podcast episode uh, with absolutely. Matt. I texted him. He was about to go and talk about Shane on Sky News, and I actually asked him, do you remember what house oh. Shane was in? So a couple of texts came back from Matt. Ashburnham, I think he said, which was the Day Boys house. Right. And he added... We would skulk together in Grove Park, trying not to be noticed and dragged into football or horrors shinty. 
he was a sweet, gentle kid. Now, Grove Park, I remember well myself. I used to go there with Matt Snow. It was in somewhere like Bromley. And it was where all the, you know, useless kids who didn't want to play sport would yeah, go. Yeah. So I can just imagine Matt and Shane McGowan, like, not wanting to get picked for Shinty. Um, <laughs> and he also... Well, they, well, they, didn't, they used to play with plank steel or something, Bill. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember playing Shinty, but Matt obviously does. I think it's, it's a girl. It's for girls. It's a girl's game. I have no anyway, idea I mean, he also just so he he mentioned the context of the interview which has done he's done he did an audio interview the only Pogues audio interview we have on the site at, currently is one that Matt did in 1986 and wow. he says in a follow up text that was quite a hair raising time involving among other things the abduction at Elvis Costello's behest of the Pogues bassist Cat O'Rourdon by future MTV supremo Bill Flanagan to save her from herself. So Bill Flanagan sort of dragged Cat away from the Pogues just in the nick of time. Anyway, mere details, footnotes. That is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of felt they were for real as... People like to say the rock world. But, you know, wherever they'd come from, that moment, what they were doing was... Yeah. There was danger. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely was. So, farewell, Shane McGowan. There was Christmas Eve, babe In the drunk tank And all man said to me well, that's what we're going to hear about. Just, um, just a handful of pieces. Added. Just a couple of things quick, quickly. This is Elton John interviewed by Ben Edmonds, Cream, 1974. It's absolutely fantastic interview. I do love an Elton John interview because oh, yeah. he's just endlessly interesting. Yes, one thing that depresses me is there are so many successful people are so fucking miserable with it. <laughs> it's so important to have fun with your success. Jesus, I spend a lot of money. I can afford to spend a lot of money, <laughs> but I spend it on other people. And I spend it having a good time. Those people who are so miserable with success, most of them just become recluses. I refuse to become a recluse. If you shut yourself away, that's the beginning of the end. This is half in italics. Um, you have to keep up with things, see what other people are up to. You have to. And he always has. And he always has. Oh, definitely. He always has. Then he says, records fascinate me. I could just watch a record going round and round for hours. That's what I used to do when I was a kid. I'd watch it go around. I couldn't believe it. The label. Any record with a good label was an instant winner, which we were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. uh, that, for me, is the magic. I mean, tapes are all right to take around with you, but there's no magic in watching a cassette yeah. tape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is fantastic. I'll, I'll skip the rest of the... What, what year was that? Uh, 75? Four. 74. 74. 74. 74. Yeah, Miami and Atlanta. Great and, and this week, just very briefly, this is Eternals Kelly to Sylvia Patterson, enemy Who? 1995. Kel, Kelly, K-E-L-L-E, right? I'm not over-familiar with the precise membership of Eternal, but that's, you know... But this was post-Louise leaving. It was post-Louise yeah. leaving. And it's just... Uh, and, and this is great, they have a real row because Sylvia Patterson keeps asking them sort of questions about what they believe and what they think, which they aren't used to. And apparently, at the end of it, they've all got their heads on the table, the sort of Richard Boardroom it was, looking exhausted. And the press officer has comes out and says, do you, do you really fucked them up, you know? <laughs> anyway, yeah, and she's, Kel, Kelly says, You're asking questions, but all the questions people have in their minds are answered in the Bible. Like, why does the sun come up, and why do I breathe at night when I'm not thinking about it? 
It's cutting edge music. It's absolutely fantastic. Wonderful. Do you have anything? I do, and hilariously, it actually continues the Bible theme. Tenacious D, live at the Astoria in London. Ian Winwood in Kerrang! on the 20th of July 2002. Outside the Astoria on the Charing Cross Road, filthy Phil the Preacher is holding a Bible and a broken megaphone. <laughs> Actually, he says, you'd better just call him Phil the Preacher. Phil the Preacher is a middle-aged man with big teeth and no hair. He's smoking a yellowed roll-up cigarette and looking nervously around him. Protesting in defence of the Lord and in prosecution of tonight's concert, Phil is not to everyone's liking. A ticket holder has just wandered up and smashed his megaphone. <laughs> You're a wanker, mate, says a fan in the queue. What's the problem, Phil? Have you ever read the Bible? Yeah, sometimes, not for a while. Well, then you'll know that the truth comes through Jesus and what you're going in there to hear tonight isn't the truth. So that's Tenacious D Live. And it's it's a funny review. And, I mean, Jack Black is a funny character. Whether you think Tenacious D is a funny band or not is another question. I think there's a sort of Mm. very particular brand of rock humour but you know they have their moments and, and Ian Winwood enjoys it <laughs> for this night it's good and somehow fitting as music has improved rock stars have declined replacing their bloody noses and short term memory loss with empathetic and wounded introversion if only for a night and if only in an act it's nice to hear something about fucking and sucking and raging and rolling something where <laughs> stupidity is a thing to aspire to you know what they say about London says Jack Black shining with sweat after the set they say that if you can make it there you can make it anywhere it's a place so good they named it twice <laughs> <laughs> that's very good well nice place to end yeah the episode thank you so much for joining us today. oh it's been an absolute treat it's thank been, you so much such a it's been huge, huge um, fun thank you please really, listen really to rush out and buy daryl's books particularly <laughs> what about happened to slay yeah. when the whole world went crazy published by omnibus press <laughs> it's the With Chris- by Bob christmas no gift less. isn't it i mean in fact the only christmas gift <laughs> the absolutely the only one the only one in the shops don't, don't bother forget, with anything don't else. look at that barbara streisand book or the britney spears one or any other book <laughs> Go straight by this to one Slade. no uh, it is for fans and for people with a general interest <laughs> in popular music. And, and careful listeners will have heard the occasional thump. It's a weighty it's me, tone. It's a, yes. <laughs> you can't put this book down without the table The quickly. table vibrating. Um, what, the, my, he started again. No, I'll stop. But, no, I won't say anymore. What a treat. Thank you very much. Oh, Enjoy. Fantastic. If you've enjoyed this episode, listeners, please follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and whichever platform you use. And do give us a review if you can. It really helps. <laughs> And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I rehearsed that 20 times. Now you're laughing at me. Sorry. Um, He really does help. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with Barbara Ellen of NME fame. That'll be our last episode of the year. And this is our cue to say goodbye. Goodbye. That concludes episode 166 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Daryl Easley. Whatever Happened to Slade When the Whole World Went Crazy is published by Omnibus and available now from all good bookshops, just in time for Christmas. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. 
The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Fantastic, that was great. Oh, thank oh, you very much. Oh, that was a lot of fun. And thank <laughs> you. As I knew you would be. Oh, oh, oh don't. Don't. No. 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 <laughs> but it was absolutely just a joy. Thank you. Joy, a lot of laughter. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of laughter. Christmas laughter. Well, that's it. You know, yeah. it's, it's not even December yet, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you press Christmas starts earlier every year around here. <laughs>